Today our country faces serious challenges, challenges that require clear, informed thinking, thinking that's outside the box. Your host, Jeff Nyquist. To the ones that wear the uniforms, to the ones that lost their lives, to a nation that's been torn, God hears your painful cries. I will stand with you, my friend, for justice will amend America. Jeff Nyquist, the host of Outside the Box, and today's program, I'm going to have my brother, Greg Nyquist, on, and we're going to talk about the uh, recent developments in the U.S. economy and, of course, uh, the bailout plan of the administration, the Obama administration. We're going to talk about where the economy's headed, what kind of things we're going to expect uh, back from it. Uh, Greg uh, watches the economy. He has a background in economics, so welcome to the show, Greg. It's nice to be here. Let me start out with we're in the midst of this financial crisis and and we had the first bailout package uh, under President Bush in which several hundred million dollars were spent and apparently they're not able to account for all of the money or where it went or and of course they're saying well there's not really a significant improvement they've prevented the whole financial system from grinding to a halt but we're facing major uh, shutdowns of businesses We've got projected unemployment rates for March of over a million lost jobs a month. Uh, we lost 590,000 jobs in January. Now both houses of Congress have apparently passed another $700 million spending bill. What do you expect will happen as a result of this bill? Well, it might um, have a short-term positive effect, but the problem with the stimulus bill is that unless it's stimulates forever, and they keep passing it every year, the same amount of money, it, it can't work in the long term because at some point they have to withdraw the stimulus. And when they withdraw the stimulus, everybody who's receiving money won't be receiving money anymore. And we'll be right back where we started, except we'll be a lot farther in debt. How are they financing this? Are they borrowing from the Chinese? What are they, where are they getting the money to finance this, or are they creating it digitally? Most of it is going to come out of borrowing, but obviously they can't do that forever. At some point, they won't be able to pay for this through borrowing and taxes. I mean, if credit markets are tight and it's difficult to find loans... Well, that's not true for bonds. Bonds have been real hot the last few months. Because all of their investments are pretty lousy. That's right. In fact, they've been selling bonds for very low percentage rates because people think it's a safe investment, and so they've been putting their money into it's it. It's got to be a dangerous investment. Uh, all investments are dangerous. Uh, Unless you're holding gold bullion, right? Yeah, if you have gold bullion and you have a safe place to put it. Yeah. Well, it, it, it does seem dangerous because, of course, what they are pursuing is, is ultimately going to lead to them hitting the wall because the exhaustion of the credit supply is what is going to happen. And, of course, the day that people say, hey, you know, is the U.S. government ever going to be able to afford to buy back these bonds? I mean, when people see the economy continuing to contract, and I assume you think it's going to continue to contract, they're going to say, wait a minute. Government revenues are falling by 10 or 20 or 30 percent. How is the U.S. government ever going to pay back all this debt when it can't even pay for the uh, required budgetary items that are on the table year after year that, that we've been paying for the past uh, uh, decade or two? 
Yeah, well, that'll, that'll happen at some time. The only question is when that will happen. I mean, our problem right now is debt. That's what's caused this crisis. It's the debt crisis. It's a lot of bad debt out there. Our economy has become addicted to debt. The whole economy works on expanding debt. And we reach the point where you can't expand anymore because nobody can take on more. More debt. They're more saturated. Debt. They're saturated. In fact, they can't. so many people can't pay the debt that they have already that other people realize they're near the edge and they don't want to take any more on. And so even if you could uh, manufacture the money, grow it on trees to loan it, people wouldn't take it. No, they won't. That's why the, the earlier bailout, which was basically a scheme to put a lot of money in the banks, hasn't really worked. Because they're trying to inflate through credit expansion, and there's a it's not they've hit the wall. They've hit the wall because there's only so much money that you can lend. Once people reach the point where people who want to borrow can't borrow anything more because they just don't have enough collateral and they're too far in over their heads, anyways, then that's it. Now it seems like, given the logic of what the government's doing, that the next logical thing that they're going to do would be suddenly spend the next $700 billion, if there's one after this, and there almost certainly would have to be, is to just simply give it to pay off people's debts so that they'll be willing to borrow more again. Well, I, there is actually some, a few people, not many, have said the only way to get out of this crisis is inflate out of this crisis. Uh -huh. It's just if you inflate away the debt, then we can start from scratch. There is a problem with that, of course, because we're in an international system and the dollar is the international reserve currency that if you do that you will destroy the dollar as a uh, respected currency people will not accept it as the international reserve currency and you will basically destroy the dollar's effectiveness both internationally and domestically because uh, i mean isn't that sort of what happens well no one knows exactly what would happen the sensible economic thing you would think is that since uh, at least a third of the world's supply of dollars is held as reserve currencies, that all these people, China and all these other countries holding reserve currencies, would desperately try to get rid of their dollars, and that would lead to a big um, export surplus for the United States. It would start things going here. But we don't know that's how they would actually act, because they don't want to buy anything we have. Because we're not really producing anything. Well, we're producing things. They just don't want to buy the stuff we're producing at our labor costs. So there'd have to be some kind of negotiation for them to accept products that were made here. Well, otherwise, they'll lose all that reserve currency value. Yeah. They have to spend it, and the only place they can spend it is the United States. Well, wouldn't it cause inflation in the United States since you'd have all these dollars chasing? Uh, yes, it would. That would really be a stimulus. The stuff they're doing right now, the stimulus bill, which really is more like a 1,500-page suicide note. I mean, it's not, not something that's going to work. Mm -hmm. But that would stimulate. Now, I have seen these reports, and someone forwarded me from this group in Europe that does analysis of uh, financial things. And they are predicting that the U.S. economy or the financial system in the United States is going to collapse before the end of next summer. Because what's going to happen is, is that they have examined the bond market and the way the U.S. government raises money to pay for its programs. And their, you know, sort of investigation into this is that the the sources of the U.S. government raising money are going to dry up during the summer, that the United States is not going to find that it can borrow. We had this happen in California, by the way. We had this budget shortfall, and Governor Schwarzenegger 
went out to say, well, we're going to float a bunch of California bonds and we're going to, uh, to borrow and get ourselves through this tough economic period by borrowing. And of course, at first, they announced success because people were buying the California uh, bonds. But then all of a sudden, it dried up. Nobody was interested in buying the California debt. They weren't convinced that California was going to get its financial house in order. And so these Europeans are saying the same thing about the United States. They're saying that the United States is headed for a moment at which people are going to look at it and go yuck and say, no, we're not. And I just wonder what you think will happen if this occurs and if you think it's going to occur and if they're making a prediction too soon saying that it's going to happen by the end of summer. Well, it's hard to say whether it will happen that quickly, although the stimulus bill that's passed um, increases the chances mm-hmm. that it will. Because they're borrowing so much. They're mm-hmm. they're taking all those people willing to borrow are being soaked up by loaning on this particular uh, bill. And debt is causing our problem, and they're just uh, increasing the debt to keep the whole thing going. Well, it's then there's one group in the United States that's willing to continue to borrow, and it's the U.S. government. <laughs> uh, yeah, but they're doing it at the behest of the financial community. Now, when I look at the national debt, I just saw recently that, of course, we our national debt is over $11 trillion. It may be with this bill over $12 trillion now. That is between thirty-five dollars and $40,000 per every man, woman, and child in the United States. It's, uh, it's an enormous sum of money. Well, that's actually not the real debt. The head of the uh, Dallas Fed Bank calculated the real debt as over uh, $90 trillion. Real debt, uh, you mean the obligation of the mm-hmm. U.S. government? $99.2 trillion, because we don't count Social Security and Medicare and that new prescription drug bill. $92 trillion. $99.2 But that's trillion. money that's going to be owed in the future. That's money that's owed in the future. It isn't owed right this and minute. And it isn't paid for yet. It isn't payable through regular taxation. No. Wow. But that's that's the amount of obligations we have. Right. Now, I'd seen the figure from another former U.S. official uh, that it was over $50 trillion. Well, that's the more common figure. What is the gross national product of the United States now? It's, what is it? I don't know Five the exact. Five or six trillion dollars a year? What is it? I don't know the exact number, but $99.2 trillion is way more than even the... Well, that's greater than the gross domestic product of the entire world. That's right. And if if you look at it that way, it seems a matter of common sense that the U.S. financial system is going to explode or implode. It's going to go down and that this is something that can only be delayed and can't be prevented from happening. No, not if uh, we keep spending all the money and keep going into debt and keep basically running what's kind of like a Keynesian program, short term. Short term fun, long term, we're all dead. Well, Keynes didn't have any children. He wasn't interested in the long term. Yeah. He said, well, in the long run, we're all dead anyway, so you might as well eat, drink, and be merry, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think even Keynes would be objecting to what is being done now. Probably because when Keynes was writing, it was a different situation. Certainly, the United States wasn't in a lot of debt. We were in no debt at all when the Great Depression came mm-hmm. along. Mm-hmm. We were a creditor country. Mm-hmm. Now, it's just debt after debt. It's, it's not only government state government, local governments, federal government, but it's it's a lot of corporations, it's a lot of businesses. The whole financial sector is based on creating these very fancy financial instruments on leveraged debt, leveraging this and that and creating excess credit, excess debt, 
And then we have the, the credit card. Credit card problem. I noticed it a year ago. It was in the New York Times, uh, a little more than a year ago in January of 2008, that it was announced that they had noted this uptick. This it was I think it was more than 7% uptick in credit card debt. That credit card debt was suddenly starting to explode and that people were relying on credit cards more and more to get by. And of course, we were beginning to enter what now is recognized as a severe recession and possibly a depression. We may be on the verge of it is what people are admitting now. And has this continued? I hear different things. I hear that the average American family owes $8,000 on credit cards. What is it at now? What do you know about credit card debt? Well, it has been going up. Mm -hmm. But in the last year, we actually have seen an increase in savings. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm sure that there are probably people out there who have gotten in worse trouble. With their cards because they're trying cards. to get by. But we are seeing more savings now. That's one of the reasons why uh, consumer spending is going down. People are getting scared and they're saving their money. That's when you hear people talk about liquidity trap or liquidity problem. That's just a code word for saying that people are hoarding cash. This is like the year 1930, after the stock market crashed at 29, when people were holding on to their cash. And you read about businesses failing because people weren't going and buying stuff. And um, even though the stock market made a partial recovery in 1930, it didn't matter uh, because the economy was basically crashing. And there's another thing I want to ask you about. 82% of those laid off so far, and uh, the employment is just, unemployment is accelerating. If you look at the graphs, you see it's plunging downward at a rate that it hasn't plunged downward in my lifetime. It looks like we're headed for at least 20% unemployment. If you look at what is forecasted about how many businesses are going to go down and how many uh, companies are going to be liquidated. Anyway, the question that I had about that is the 82% are male breadwinners, uh, people who are supporting wives and kids. These are the people that are being hit hardest. And I'm wondering if the shock to the economy is greater that, that let's say you get 10% unemployment, but the government's losing 20% of its revenue or 30% of its revenue. Do you think that this is the kind of thing that we're going to see? Oh, yeah, that's absolutely what's happening because it's the financial sector that's being hurt really the worst. And since the financial sector was involved in all kinds of, um, you know, Ponzi finance type, very questionable type of uh, behavior, done by very smart people who weren't very wise. I mean, this is why the government wants to bail it out, because these people were getting very, very rich, huge amounts of money, and the government, through taxation, was also reaping big dividends. So you're having a, you know, a third of the people paying a, a large portion of the taxes. And that third is the third that's being wiped out. Well, the top end of that. Uh -huh. Yes, absolutely. So the government, now I noticed in California... In the fall, they announced that they had, out of a $100 billion budget, a 10% shortfall, a shortfall of $10 billion. Six weeks later, the shortfall was $15 billion, which indicated that the rate of the loss of revenue was accelerating, and that I would not be surprised that if sometime in the spring it reaches $20 billion, which means that suddenly the state of California is out 20% of its revenue. We had, at the end of December, a 9.3% unemployment rate, probably 10% by now. It occurs to me that the federal government's going to experience a similar loss of revenue at this particular critical time when so many programs, federal programs, are funded and the federal government's being called upon to bail out everybody, state governments, counties, and uh, the automobile industry, for example, that's been crying in Detroit. 
So are we hitting a kind of moment of, of an explosion where all of a sudden it all hits at once and it's all too much, too much lost revenue that it just basically the government is without means? Well, I think they'd probably be without means anyways if they're going to have these huge stimulus packages. The amount of money that the stimulus packages is so great that the loss of revenues is minor in comparison. Per person in the United States, what does this stimulus package cost? It must cost quite a few thousand dollars per every man, woman, and child in the world for this stimulus package. It does. No doubt about it. And eventually we're going to have to pay that back at interest. I remember the quote, and I don't know if it's apocryphal, from uh, from Einstein, who said that uh, that he was fascinated by compound interest, that it was the, the most amazing law of the universe, compound interest. And I had uh, I had uh, mentioned this to Michael Panzner when he was on the show that uh, Vilfredo Pareto had an interesting analysis of compound interest at 4% from the birth of Christ to the year 1900. If you put a penny, the smallest French denomination, the amount in francs that you would have after 1900 years would be in gold the equivalent of more than 30 planet Earths, you know, 30 solid planets of gold, uh, which is an incredible thing. And so obviously, if you have a negative process of compound interest, where your money doesn't multiply, your money, your wealth disappears, that this is one of the phenomenon of debt. Isn't it really inevitable that the economy is going to collapse? And in that event, is the government going to be able to continue or what's going to happen with the government? What, what does the government do when it doesn't have any money? Well, normally it becomes like third world government and they, they they simply create money. Like in Zimbabwe? In Zimbabwe, yeah. Did you hear that, that a single sheet of toilet paper is worth more than a $5,000 M note? So the British press made fun and said, well, we know what the 5000 mm -hmm. Zim note is good for. Um, it's much better as toilet paper. It's cheaper. Yeah, the prices in that country, when you enter the grocery store, they're, they're rising as you're shopping. Yeah, it's it's incredible. You know, I talked to Jan Lemprecht in South Africa. He's a native of Zimbabwe, which used to be called Rhodesia, and he talks about how destructive it is. Uh, and people in Zimbabwe are starving, and if it wasn't for international relief there, the country, probably half the people there would be dead from starvation or the uh, health effects of starvation. Who's going to bail out the United States? I mean, we saw what happened in Iceland. The whole country basically shut down. Its, its economy and everything just stopped. And that can happen here, can it? I'm not sure to the same extent. Um, we still have a lot of resources, still have a lot of people working. What would happen is the government would have to declare martial law, and uh, the democratic system would collapse. Mm, it's interesting. I, I met a retired CIA guy uh, a couple of years ago. I had a long conversation with him. He's retired, and, and he said that, uh, that one of the things that surprised him, that another friend currently working in the government mentioned that they had this martial law plan. And I thought, oh, really? And he said, yeah, it would include things like you could only go like 50 miles from your home and you would have identity papers showing where you lived. There would be all these restrictions and there'd be rationing cards. And it, it sounded quite terrifying, actually. And I asked him what the contingency was for. And it was in the event of an economic collapse. So I guess somebody in the government has gone over this and thought, well, it could happen. We better plan for it. So would that be martial law with President Obama in charge or would the military step in? 
how would that work? And with the military ha- having sworn an oath of allegiance to uphold the Constitution, this would be seen as a temporary emergency measures, do you suppose? It's hard to say. One of the problems we have is that our democratic government isn't working. It's not making the right decisions. No. And, you know, there's only so long a government like that can stay aboard. You have to get people in there who not only know what to do, but have the ability to put that into action. You know, like Cromwell chasing away the Parliament. Oh, yes. The Parliament was trying to prevent him from doing what he needed to do to stay in power. And uh, it is a remarkable speech. He just chases them out of the Parliament. It is high time for me to put an end to your sitting in this place, which you have dishonored. You're a pack of mercenary wretches, and enemies to all good government. And like Judas, betray your God for a few pieces of money. You have no more religion than my horse. Gold is your God. Is there a man amongst you that has the least care for the good of the commonwealth? Ye sordid prostitutes, have you not defiled this sacred place and turned the Lord's temple into a den of thieves by your immoral principles and wicked practices? Your country therefore calls upon me to cleanse this Algean stable by putting a final period to your iniquitous proceedings in this house, and which, by God's help and the strength he has given me, I am now come to do. I command ye, therefore, upon the peril of your lives, to depart immediately out of this place. Go! Get you out! Make haste! In the name of God, go! That was the most eloquent speech he ever made. He, wasn't he was a big, not an eloquent man. No, he wasn't a speech maker, but you get the sense from the speech that he was angry. He was, because uh, he, he would have lost his head if, if the place had been misgoverned, because the king would have come back. So he was fighting for his, his life, basically. Yeah. And he was the most competent guy around. He was the most competent guy in the world. Yeah, at that time. Yes, that's true. With me is Greg Nyquist. Uh, he is also my brother here on Outside the Box. I'm Jeff Nyquist. And uh, we'll be back after these messages. Listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. WIBG 1020, live local radio for Atlantic City, Cape May, and all of South Jersey. All right, it was a one-time kick. They blew it, but the Vikings right there to field it. I think it takes guts to come out like you are doing right now. And if all of us will listen to this station more, I'm just so keyed up about it. We talked about it by the hour. We are going to pursue this until we're satisfied. WIBG 1020 on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 1020. We're everywhere. Listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. And we're back. I'm Jeff Nyquist. This is Outside the Box. With me is my brother Greg Nyquist. He's an economic analyst. He uh, he does writing for my website, jrnyquist.com, and we're going to be launching a new website soon, which is strategiccrisis.com. And uh, it's very interesting where the direction the discussion has just taken, and we were talking about Cromwell and what happened with the breakdown of the attempt at democracy after the beheading of King Charles of England in the middle of the 17th century. We find that great political crises stem from great economic crises. We have the example of the French Revolution, which find ways of raising money. And that's well, they had a stimulus plan that was called Madame de Pompadour. 
Oh, yeah, Madame de Under Louis the Fifteenth, they wanted to spend a lot of money, and Madame de Pompadour and the other obliged them. Yes, was very talented, but unfortunately, instead of prosperity, there was bloodshed and it brought ruin and ruin. Yeah, they had uh, all these different plans, and they wanted to raise money, and they called into existence the French Parliament or the the National Assembly, and they uh, basically the Parliament pushed the king out of the way. Actually, had him guillotined had his wife, Marie Antoinette, guillotined, had his children, little children, guillotined. And, of course, uh, they had the Committee of Public Safety and Robespierre and the Terror. They had a regular revolution with all of the pathological path of development that often violent revolutions have. And uh, we had Weimar Germany, which was uh, laden with the debt of World War I, and uh, the Germans suffered horribly under that. They had hyperinflation in the 20s. They had a series of unsuccessful governments. You had the rise of the Nazi party, and of course you had Hitler appointed chancellor, and you had the Nazi revolution. In uh, Russia, the economic system began to break down during World War I. You had the, uh, the February, or sometimes the March revolution, depending on which calendar you're using, in which the Tsar was overthrown. And then later that year, you had the uh, Bolshevik revolution, in which the communists took power in Russia. So we have seen violent upheavals and revolutions taking place in countries where there have been a sudden economic crisis where people were in severe distress. You had riots. Usually it starts with riots or something equivalent. You have radical movements arising. And from this you have either ideological or sectarian differences that that cause it. And it's hard for me to wrap my mind around what happens to this country with the way it's ideologically divided between left and right. You see the red states and you see the blue states. And they really have very different attitudes towards everything from family to uh, government, financing, the economy, and how to interpret the Constitution and what the role of the Supreme Court is. It's, it's really a huge difference. Is, is the United States in danger of breaking apart in a more than one country? Well, that's, that's difficult because the red state, blue state doesn't really show you what's happening. You almost have to go county by county and if you go county by county, the whole United States is mostly red. It's just the urban areas that are blue. Now that I have seen, you're right, I've seen that. That is most interesting, which means the small town and counties out from the major cities are controlled by people who have a more traditional outlook, whereas the cities are dominated by people with a very ultra-liberal outlook, more and more. And is that because the cities have become very mixed racially, and the people don't identify with America and American traditions, but they are creating this new multicultural kind of America? Uh, that's part of it. Part of it is that, uh, you know, you have a lot of the poor people, oftentimes of the racial minorities, congregating in the cities, and then they elect their own people, mm -hmm. and the cities become mismanaged. They drive out all the um, people with middle-class values, and you end up getting a segregation based on values of dependence, uh, sort of a psychological collectivism, versus the uh, more individualistic uh, middle-class values of traditional America. So the country is split along urban, rural, and small town lines, then, and it's within each state, although some states are highly urbanized and others are not. Um, That's right. Isn't the power in the cities? I mean, here, I live in Northern California, where the Southern California takes their water. And of course, they're, they're literally drying out the rivers and killing the salmon by taking so much water. 
but they have all the votes, so they can vote to have what they want. Now, if the democracy breaks down and it becomes something else, what happens then? Is it is it that military dictatorship polices the cities and decides what's best for the country overall, and it sides on the on the side of the red counties versus the cities and treats the cities as as centers of riot and and loss of control? Well, it's all circulation of elites. In these crisis periods, people will look to centers of real power. And that would tend to be people with military, people, people with, guns. with guns. But what about the armed gangs in the cities? Would they really stand a chance against uh, an not organized against, military? Not against a trained military force. No, they wouldn't. But would American soldiers fire on Americans in a city situation? I mean, this was the thing about the Bolshevik Revolution. The Tsar sent regiment after regiment into St. Petersburg to get control of the rioting, and the regiments would go in and go over to the people. And I look at the United States Army and I think, well, where are most of these people recruited from? A lot of them are recruited from the cities. There's a lot of minorities in the U.S. military. Would they fire on these people or identify with them? And it's hard to imagine a kind of crisis in the United States. It's hard to see which way it goes. Well, I, I suppose they might have ways of, of trying to only send people into the city that aren't from the city. Yeah, that's what the Chinese did in the Tiananmen Square. They they sent their uh, peasant soldiers from the countryside in to man the tanks. Since they would have no friends in Beijing, they would have no friends that were going to a university or being students or being influenced by American ideas. They could get those soldiers to drive tanks over the protesters or open fire on them. Are you surprised that the media is not more aware of the kind of dangerous situation we're moving into? Or are you seeing the media is being pretty knowledgeable about the situation? Do they know how bad it is? Or are you hearing the media saying what's really going on? No, of course they don't know, because this is a failure in, in academia. Look at most economists. They didn't see this coming. Yeah, that's interesting. I remember Friedrich Hayek uh, back during the great inflation of the 70s in his Nobel Prize speech telling people, hey, most economists didn't see this coming either. Mm -hmm. They never see what's coming. Yeah. And now we see all these Keynesians coming out of the woodwork. We thought Keynesianism was refuted by what happened in the 70s. Now they're all coming back. Hmm. And they're, they're becoming the top people in their profession again. You know, what's interesting is among the people who predicted the Great Depression months in advance were Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises. They said it was coming. They had no doubts about it. In fact, I remember reading that uh, earlier in 1929, von Mises was offered a job. I think it was at a bank in Austria somewhere. And he didn't want to take it because he said, well, there's a, a, a crash is coming and I don't want to be associated with it. So I don't want to be at your bank, which probably must have really shocked the person he was talking to. I had Michael Panzer on the show. He was one of the few people. Of course, he's not a banker or an economist. He's a guy who actually worked on Wall Street who wrote almost two years before the crisis actually hit full-blown that it was coming, that he could see it, and he laid it out logically. And it was, it was very interesting that, you know, here you got all these economists who go and study for years, they get a Ph.D., and what good are they? They're not any good. Um, the real problem goes back to the 19th century and the fact that economics as a study was taken over by engineers and scientists. Mm -hmm. And they decided that economy is like a mechanism. 
And so they brought in all these uh, concepts from, you know, chemistry and physical science and interpreted economics by the basis of these metaphors. Unfortunately, they did not understand that they were using metaphors. They took them literally. And so economists don't really understand all the sort of the nuances. They only see what can be measured. They didn't see any inflation because they view inflation as a, as a broad type of thing. It has to happen to the entire economy. If it's only happening in a slight segment of the economy, it's not really inflation. So the, the rise in the stock market, when it went by a factor of six between 1987 and the year 2000, it didn't alarm them. Nobody thought that that was inflation. They hmm. were just looking at consumer prices, and those only rose a few percent a year. So they didn't think there was any problem. That's astonishing that they didn't think there was a problem. That's sort of like the Titanic is listing at 75 degrees and they think the ship isn't sinking. Well, it's, it's worse than that. They don't understand that the, the chief thing about money is not the quantity of money. It's the quality of money. It's the estimation that people give to that money. It's just this, this Keynesian idea that the problem is liquidity preference. Everyone has a liquidity preference. They want to go into money. But why do they want to go into money? The reason why they want to get into cash is because we have a deflationary thing happening right now mm -hmm. with all the debt going down. People are scared. They, they want to hold something that has some value. Right. And then when they start getting wind that, uh, you know, this stuff is losing value, they'll, they'll try to escape into something else. Yeah, that, that's logical, and that's, that's normal. And it's very interesting, the idea of, of looking at the economy – which is really the sum of human reactions and, and its human psychology, it's almost like treating man as a mechanism. Well, that's, that's what it amounts to in the end. They don't realize that human beings are not mechanisms. Uh, the human brain is not a computer. Computers are very, very stupid. They're great at calculating, but they're not wise. They don't make qualitative judgments. An organism is not a mechanism. It's a living thing. And there's thing, you know, a computer is not a living thing. It can't think. It can only follow a process. You know, there's a lot of hubris in this uh, treating organic uh, things as mechanisms because it, it a mechanism is something we can understand. We can understand a watch. It's a mechanism. We can understand an automobile. But to understand the human mind or to understand the simplest form of life, it's really a mystery. And in fact, the true methodology in the social science is that everything we know is history. We only know from what's happened before, and it's not like everything happens exactly the same twice. But you have to have a sort of knowledge and you have to you kind of reason by metaphor or analogy. Well, in social science, it's, uh, you know, it's the method of, of successive approximations. Mm -hmm. Everything's approximate. And the interesting thing is that one of the, the earlier critics of regarding the money supply as a mechanism was an economist named Benjamin Anderson. Mm -hmm. Benjamin Anderson, during the 20s, he worked for a bank. He saw what was coming. He saw the Great Depression He coming. saw the Great Depression coming. Now, the economist that he criticized, Irving Fisher, was the leading economist in the United States at the time. Mm -hmm. Irving Fisher was originally an engineer. He was the first person to get a Ph.D., I think, from Yale. Mm -hmm. Very smart guy. Three weeks before the crash, 1929, he said, we are on a permanent plateau as far as the, the market is concerned. And he expected it to go up a great deal more. Oh, my goodness. So you, you get this big contrast between this one economist, a mathematical economist, believes in quantifying everything. He has no real understanding of what's going on. The other economist who, 
who warned about all the errors of Irving Fisher, who explained what the errors are. He said it's it's a question of the quality of money, not the quantity of money. They can throw all the money they want at this. If the money is poor quality, the thing's going to come to a crash. Anderson was found right. Fisher was found wrong. And it's very interesting that it's too late. Too late to say I was right and you were wrong. I mean, uh, what what happened to Anderson after the after his predictions proved correct? Well, of course, uh, he was still a, a fairly major figure in the circles he went into. But he was never accepted fully by the no. establishment. No, he wasn't. And what about Irving Fisher? Well, Fisher kind of lapsed as well. Keynesianism came and sort of flooded over there, and, and Benjamin Anderson became more of a critic of Keynes after that, and even talked to him one time and asked Keynes, well, why don't we just uh, raise white elephants as a way of getting out of this mess? And Keynes said, well, that would be just the thing. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, I, I, this is Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist, and with me is my brother Greg Nyquist. We're talking about the economy and the history of economic analysis, actually, what's gone on in the past. It's quite fascinating. And uh, we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. WIBG 1020, live, local radio for Atlantic City, Cape May, and all of South Jersey. All right, it was one side kick, they bloop it, but the Vikings right there to field it. I think it takes guts to come out like you are doing right now. And if all of us will listen to this station more, I'm just so keyed up about it. We talked about it by the hour. We are going to pursue this until we're satisfied. WIBG 1020, on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 1020, we're everywhere. Okay, we're back. I'm Jeff Nyquist. This is Outside the Box, and with me is my brother, Greg Nyquist. We've been discussing the economy and, of course, the blindness that people have with regard to the crisis, how economists didn't predict it. Uh, Very few people saw it coming. And uh, talking in comparatively with the crisis of 1929 that brought on the Great Depression, I watched Viktor Suvorov, the Russian GRU defector, uh, earlier this month. He spoke uh, before the Hudson Institute about his new book, The Chief Culprit, in which he basically shows that the that well-known facts about the beginning of World War II have been misinterpreted and that Stalin really was the major figure, the chief culprit in starting World War II, not, not Hitler. Hitler was guilty too, but but Hitler was basically tricked into starting the war by Stalin. It was interesting, the reaction of the journalists who were there to to throw questions at Suvorov, and they asked him, well, why have all these historians missed this this correct interpretation? Uh, why is it only for you to have this uh, understanding? And Suvorov said, what, are you asking me why they're all so brilliant? You know, what is it about people? And I think about Albert J. Knox's book, uh, Members of a Superfluous Man, referring to his teaching experience in the Ivy League. I think it was Harvard, wasn't it, that he taught at? He was a, uh, a a minister. Yeah, but he did teach at the university. And it's in his book, Members of a Superfluous Man. And he has this thing in the book where he said that of the students that he had, he discovered that most people are trainable. Well, nearly everyone is. Monkeys are trainable. Dogs are trainable. But he said very few are educable. And he, he basically made the point that 
what we call a human being as a rational animal, very few people are, whether because they don't want to think or learn or grow intellectually or because they don't have the brains. It doesn't matter. They just it doesn't happen for them. And it's very few people that actually look at the facts and are able to analyze and think. And, and that would apparently include many people who are professors who know things, who, I mean, because I know a lot of people who saw this economic thing coming, and I heard about it, you know, in advance, and everything they said came true, and it was pretty common sense. The knowledge wasn't that difficult to understand, and yet all these very famous, popular, successful people, the economists and and other people, they didn't see it coming. And so you have to say that there are two classes of people involved in in debate and talking and, and, you know, you'd say punditry maybe or, or expert opinion. There's two different kinds. And really, most of the experts don't know what they're talking about or are wrong. And it's just very few that are right, that are right enough to be able to make successful predictions. So is this a permanent problem? I mean, looking back, I'm thinking maybe in the 19th century, it wasn't as bad as it is now, but maybe it was. Well, it's all about selection. There's a process of selection by which society, the institutions of society, select those people who become pundits. Mm -hmm. And whatever skills you need to become a pundit, they're not necessarily correlated to the skills of having good judgment. Right. And I think that's particularly true of the society we have, in which, you know, there's so much, uh, almost like an intellectual hedonism where people want to hear what makes them feel good. Yes, you're right. That is a very true fact And about oftentimes us. the people with the real good judgment sometimes are not particularly good talkers, they're not aggressive, they're not great self-promoters. They don't have that celebrity sparkle. No, they don't. I mean, you look at some of the, the people who, who in crises emerge to become great, people like Cromwell and Grant and there are others, they were nothing before, before the crisis. Yeah. Ulysses S. Grant was considered to be a nothing, yeah. He got a charity job from a relative working at a hardware store in Galena, Illinois, and he was the only guy that knew how to win the Civil War. That's right. He's the only one that had the judgment. It seems pretty common sense. You attack the, them in three places, and you, you keep the main army of Lee occupied in Virginia, and yeah. it seems common sense, but he was the only one who could figure that out. Yeah, and he knew also that they had to attack logistically, they had to flank them, and, uh, you know, when you study what he did, he actually discovered the method that the Germans later called Blitzkrieg, which was you attack the lines of communication rather than going for a direct battle. He actually avoided a lot of direct battles, people don't realize that. He captured a lot of Confederate soldiers. I think, I think he captured more soldiers than he killed, which is something to be said, because there's a lot of generals that can never claim to capture very many soldiers. Now, looking at this president, people say he's brilliant, President Barack Obama. Do you see the great man, the great thinker, the great intellect, the person who can cut through and solve the problem? Do you see that in this administration? No, he's a great talker. And um, I think back to the historian Thomas Carlyle, who had nothing but uh, scorn for people who could merely talk. Carlyle said that his studies of history showed that it was the silent people that were the the ones who were spending their time thinking and ruminating. Uh, people like Cromwell. Cromwell figured it out. He figured out how to defeat an aristocratic army with non-aristocrats. And that was difficult because aristocrats saw war as their profession in those days. And so non-aristocrats fighting them would, would usually be trounced. And I believe in the English Civil War, the royalists won the early battles. Oh, they won all the early battles. Yeah. And then Cromwell came along and 
he started winning even when he was outnumbered two to one, three to one. Not only winning, but routing. Routing, yes. In fact, military strategists like Little Hart made a study out of Cromwell's campaign, his invasion of Scotland particularly was like a model of perfect strategy. And and the logic that the man employed, um, the ability to think, that seems to be the thing. Is it is it not true then, given that thinking really belongs to the few, that... Uh, that in reality, most people are just following a formula or a model, since they're not actually thinking and analyzing, that their fortune's based on that they've fallen into a groove that just happens by chance to work at a particular time. Well, they're thinking at a, a lower level. Uh, the fact is that reality is very, very complex. Mm-hmm. And just mere rational thinking, like that was modeled by Plato and the Socratic Dialogues and mm-hmm. Aristotle, that just doesn't work. Nor does the, the simple conceptual type thinking followed by most really intelligent people. Mm-hmm. The type of thinking that probably is necessary is more of an intuitive type of thinking based on experience and, and also based on an, on an ability to control emotions in such a way that they don't interfere in reaching the right kind of conclusion. So you're not deluding yourself. One of the things that they've found recently in studies about uh, human cognition is that there's no such thing as detached thinking. All thinking is imbued with emotion. If you take emotion out, people can't think. Because why would they? The emotions give people the, the necessary clues. Right. They're, they're like pointers. And uh, the problem is, the reason why a lot of old-style thinkers like Descartes did not like emotion is because Descartes noticed how many times emotion got in the way. Mm-hmm. And that's usually what happens is emotion does get in the way. But you need emotion anyways. It's just the right kind of emotion. And really smart people, they have a capability, people with really good judgment, of using their emotions to reach the truth, rather than their emotions blocking, keep preventing them from seeing the truth. Well, there's something about thinking that's very cutting, whereas emotions are more easily cut. And so that when you think, you're really, in a sense, if you're really thinking hard, you're cutting yourself. I mean, it hurts, because you're thinking you're going to stumble upon stuff, oh, am I like that? Oh, did I make that mistake? Oh, oh, that's pretty nasty. You know, the more you think, the more you analyze, especially looking at yourself, the more you find all these faults and problems with yourself and your life. Uh, because it's it's sort of like thinking is critical. Well, it's, you know, a lot of it may be also back to Machiavelli and what he said about the lions and the foxes. Mm-hmm. And then Pareto later came along and said, well, very few people are both. Most people are either foxes or lions. They're either clever or they're just strong. They're strong. And to be someone like a Cromwell, you really need to be both. Yeah. You can't be just too smart because you can run up into Hamletism, where you're really smart, you see all sides of everything, but you can't make up your mind. You have to have decisive, and yet you have to be really smart. Mm. So your intelligence can't undermine your confidence because, let's face it, the most intelligent people tend to be skeptical because they, they start to realize how, how complicated everything is. And that they don't understand, and, and so they, that they start to wonder if mm-hmm. anyone else does. As Goethe says, you know, first you think you know everything, and then as you know more, you realize you know nothing. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, similar to what Socrates said. You know, and why is Socrates the wisest man in Greece? Because I know I don't know anything, and uh, other people think they know some things, and I'm the only one that knows that I don't. That's that's pretty basic um, in terms of critical reasoning. Uh, to know the smallest thing is very difficult. 
It's very difficult, and it's an evolutionary process, and it takes a long time, and you have to have familiarity with the thing you're attempting to understand. You can't know a thing without coming at it from many different directions, and over a period of time, it seems. And maybe it's that people just don't have the patience. They're too busy. They've got too many things going on that they can't really ever get to know something well enough or have the patience to stick with it to know it. That may be part of it, but a lot of it is that people... They want applause from other people. They want to believe what other people do. They, they're not independent-minded enough. Oh, no, there's another thing. In- intellectual integrity and independence of thought. And in fact, if everyone was independent-minded, society would collapse. It's a, it's a character problem, isn't it? Yes. You're not getting along with everyone. You're not going along with the program. But you have to have a few people who are independent-minded. And in a crisis, these are the people you need in leadership. And that's really what's going to happen here. If we get a great leader, mm-hmm. if there's a George Washington or Cromwell or somebody of that sort, or if there isn't. If there isn't, oh my gosh, then we're really in trouble. Because we really, in a crisis like that, that's what you need. Exactly, and we will get people who are, you know... Are pretending. Well, they're, that are better than average. Uh-huh. You know, is it Cromwell or is it Adolf Hitler? No, that's true. Now, I was thinking about the American Civil War. I was thinking about how fortunate the country was to have Lincoln, if if mm-hmm. for the North winning, of course. It's not fortunate if you're a Southerner and you wanted Southern independence. But for keeping, the preserving the Union... Well, Southern, Southerners had such terrible leadership, they shouldn't have even gotten to the Civil War. There was no reason for them to start it. Yeah, well, it... It, it, it was just poor leadership from the beginning. They didn't seem to get it together. I mean, they had some good generals, well, they had great generals for tactical field. Yeah, for, for fighting in the field, but, but they, they didn't they have never a strategy had a broad to win. Strategy. No. And Jefferson Davis sort of had one, but he couldn't get the commanders to do always what he envisioned. It seemed that the whole principle of, of sort of independent power undermined the idea of their independence. Yeah, it did in that, that situation, whereas Lincoln knew if he got a general, he would win. But how difficult it was for him to find one. And you would think that in that age where people, it was an age of literacy. It was an age where people cultivated understanding well, and reading. it's because it was Grant. How would anyone have known that it was Grant? No, that's true. See, that's the problem. But how come there weren't more like him? How come, how come so many of the generals didn't simply know what to do, couldn't think their way through the problem? Well, we were getting a new kind of warfare. The weapons were getting better and better. And, you know, military people tend to be of the conservative type. They're not innovative in their thinking mm-hmm. the conservative type of people who followed the rules and did everything the right way lions as opposed to fox there was winfred scott very yeah, fine old, general he was a good general but he was old and he so he was a little too old and sort of past his time but you know the generals that had come up with him the best of them like lee and some of the others they went with the south they went with the south and i'm not sure how well lee would have done if he'd been a northern general tactically he's brilliant but again they needed the strategy well the one time he went on the offensive it was a disaster at gettysburg yes well he was rolling the dice well it is interesting the the whole idea of leadership and what we need i mean do you see the private sector under attack are we going to have socialism in this country is that where we're headed we're not headed towards socialism we're headed towards um keynesian interventionism but doesn't yeah. socialism lie on the other side of the catastrophe that keynesianism brings or or is it something else no, they, they simply want a government that has a very large role in the market. That's what they want. And that seems inevitable, doesn't it? We already have it. Yeah, we have But it. they're just going to increase the role of government. And is this going to be permanent, or are we going to have a revolution in something unforeseen? 
Well, it's hard to say, you know, if, if we reach the point where we need martial law, then all bets are off. But oftentimes these things, they go through cycles because when you over intervene, you have what you had in the 70s. It breaks down and people say, hey, it's not working. We got to try something else. Can we be compared with the French Revolution or are we closer to Weimar in, in a comparison of where we're headed? Well, we're kind of on our own little plane here. We're not on any of those we're quite not, yet. We're not, we're not like that. Again, it depends if if we have a breakdown and we need martial law. If we don't, we're more headed towards something like the 70s, only worse. And of course, I can't imagine the currency failing and there well, not being a political revolution in the country. You know, currency failing, that's a complicated question because there's all kinds of other currencies in the world. And again, it won't necessarily just fall off a cliff. Mm -hmm. Like in the 70s, it just gets worse and worse. But it's more like an incline going down. It's not terribly steep. Mm -hmm. And so there's always a point where you can draw back. And again, the dollar falls in value. Suddenly, buying American looks better for the rest of the world. Now, I see unemployment reaching 20% within the next 18 months. Do you see the same thing? Uh, it just depends on how the, the depreciation of currencies around the world and foreign trade plays out. If the dollar depreciates more than other currencies and our exports go up, mm -hmm. I don't see 20%. I saw both the Chinese Premier and the Russian Prime Minister at Davos, Switzerland. I read their speeches. I studied them, in fact, and, and both of them very cleverly, very carefully attacked the dollar as the world's reserve currency. That was the focus of both speeches. And they had the two opening speeches at the Davos World Economic Forum, whatever it's called. And are we headed, and, and Michael Pansner thought we were headed in this direction, are we headed towards the dollar just simply not being accepted at all overseas? And the dollar becomes valueless. Well, Panzer doesn't say it'll become valueless, but... Well, it'll be accepted less and less, but the dynamic is, is that we have this huge credit account deficit because all these other countries in the world, they've devalued their currencies below the dollar so that they can have export surpluses. See, there's, there's all this jockeying it's going around. All these countries want to sell to us. Well, that's over. Free well, trade is a joke, is isn't it? Free trade was on our backs, was on America's back, wasn't it? Well, the way the decisions that, uh, that individual consumers made and, and the way the governments manipulated it, yeah, it, it was kind of a joke. But now the joke is going to be on them because we're going to be competing with all these countries trying to devalue our currencies to try to get it down low enough so that people will start buying American from abroad. They don't have to accept dollars if they're buying products from us. So that's, They can get rid of their dollars. So that's really the answer is to solve this problem is in trade policy and the diplomacy of the president to get other countries to accept some kind of new arrangement in trade policy. Yes, that would be one of the solutions. The other one would not be to have a stimulus bill, but just to start liquidating, have an orderly liquidation of the debt, let a lot of companies go bankrupt and reformat the debt. And make sure that people eat and there's public order mm -hmm. during this process. And if, if there's an industry that's completely wiped out, you, you might be able to take the business that's doing the least worst and help that business out a little bit. You don't reward the people who've been making the worst decisions of all. Right. We need to get those people out of their positions. We need a circulation of economic elites. We need a new group. We need group. fresh blood people that, uh, that weren't making all these bad decisions. Let the economic power go into the hands of people who know what they're doing. Yeah, that seems pretty clear, and that seems like part of what's being resisted. That's exactly what's being resisted. We just want to keep the whole borrowing thing going.
And the whole group of people that sort of created this mess, they sort of have a lockhold, and they, they're saying, Washington, we're going to drag you down with us. You have to save us. I mean, am I exaggerating? Well, that's, that's part of it. We've deregulated markets with safety nets, and you can't ever do that. Well, I was amazed that they, they suddenly made all these investment banks covered by the FDIC insurance. Uh, yeah, you can't do that because then you're basically socializing losses. Isn't it true that since the beginning of this crisis in September of 2008, they've made one dumb, catastrophic decision after another? Uh, yes, for the most part. That's uh, true. Uh, I mean, that's what it looked like to me. I mean, I, I read the news and I shake my head and I think, they can't be doing that. They can't be that stupid. This is like desperate people grabbing at straws, grabbing at whatever they can. Well, they're using the, the worst tools out of the toolbox of Keynesianism and monetarism, which are the two economic philosophies that have dominated since the, you know, the 40s and 50s. Do you see the possibility that we could return to a gold standard? Um, if things get really weird and, and really strange, and it's possible we might have a de facto gold standard. And it just might happen on its own. I, I can't imagine the government actually being behind it. It's so hard to implement something like that because you don't know where to put the dollar vis-a-vis -vis the gold standard. So basically when the economy collapses or if the financial system or the currency collapses, people will spontaneously rediscover real money, gold and silver, begin trading and buying and selling in that, and shove the paper currencies aside and say, all right, well, well, we're going to create our own economy spontaneously. Yeah, in fact, uh, it would probably be a good idea to start moving towards gold if, if we, we were governed by smart people. That's what we they would announce. We'll have like a five or ten year plan to get back to gold. That could put a lot of more confidence. Very interesting. Well, Greg Nyquist, he's a contributor to my website, jarenyquist.com, and our new upcoming website, which is strategiccrisis.com. I want to thank you for being on the show, and um, I want to thank the listening audience, and I hope you'll join us next week at this same time for another edition of Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. Until then, God bless. Today our country faces serious challenges, challenges that require clear, informed thinking, thinking that's outside the box. Your host, Jeff Nyquist. To the ones that wear the uniforms, to the ones that lost their lives, to a nation that's been torn, God hears your painful cries. I will stand with you, my friend. But justice will amend America. America. I'd like to remind the listeners to visit my website at jrnyquist.com, and there you'll find a link to access all my columns on Financial Sense, my past columns at WorldNet Daily and SierraTimes.com and other Internet publications. So I encourage all the readers to go there. There's lots of information on my website. It's a great resource, and I hope you'll visit it. jrnyquist.com. That's J-R-N-Y-Q-U-I-S-T.com. And that's my website. Go check it out. This has been a presentation of the Jeff Nyquist Out of the Box radio program.